0: Now, for those of you who have not been following, uh, not been with us for the last few weeks, uh, we are in a series We started this year on a series on the Kingdom of God. And what the, what this really means is that this year, we want to really understand what It looks like for a church to be the earthly manifestation of what God is doing and always is doing in heaven. So we always pray the Lord's Prayer and say, uh, um, your kingdom come, right? We pray this. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Your will be done on earth because his will is is done in heaven it's always done in heaven, and so what we want when we pray the Lord's prayer is for His will to also be done on earth as it is in heaven. let it be done on earth and this year we are exploring what it looks like when His will is done on earth, and for that for that uh, today we're going to enter into one of the one of the most core things about our Christian faith is that God forgives. God forgives. And when He forgives, that forgiveness is meant to transform us so that and such that, that forgiveness rolls forward into us forgiving others as well. That's what the kingdom of God looks like? That's what it looks like when His will is taking place on earth, as it is taking place in heaven. That we are forgiven people, and we are also forgiving people. Right? So, so let's for that. I want to take us into Matthew chapter eighteen today. And and this Matthew eighteen, uh, Peter. Also, unprovoked, goes up to Jesus and asks him this question. Then Peter approached him, being Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus answers, I tell you, not as many as seven. And you almost think He wants to say something, a smaller number, because He says, not as many as seven. And then He says, but seventy times seven. Now, even before we go to the next slide and read the rest of this text, you must know, Peter is not asking, and Jesus is not answering in literal, numerical terms. So it's not as if I have a logbook and I'm crossing out like I've forgiven uh, Andros, for example, once and twice. And he's on like 68 and 69 and he's almost done and our friendship won't last till we are 50, right? Uh, That's not what's happening in this text. When Jesus... when. Peter says as many as seven times, he's effectively saying, because the number seven refers to, uh, some people say it refers to number of completion, it refers to the cycle of the whole week. So it's almost as if Peter is saying, how often should I, uh, how many times should I forgive those who sin against me all the time? Right? So when he says seven times, it's almost evoking the seven days of the week. He's almost like saying, should I forgive them constantly? and Jesus replies not just constantly but abundantly not just constantly not just always but not but but lavishly always that's another way of thinking of 70 times 7 it is not numerical it is qualitative abundantly lavishly and we're going to see this play out in the rest of the text so let's look verse 23 And then Jesus says to Peter, and presumably to the disciples who are there, but we won't presume, Peter definitely hears this. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. So. Uh, the footnote on my ESV says that one talent is, a, is, is 20 years wages. Okay, so that's like, whoa, this is a black hole. This is a black hole. This guy is not going to be… In fact, this is a, Jesus telling a parable. So this didn't actually happen. So we need to know this. The way Jesus tells His stories, He tells a fictitious story to illustrate a real truth. Right? So he's telling a story of a guy who owes 20 years' wages by 10. So that's 200 years' wages. And whatever you think is the average typical Malaysian years' wages, you just, you just try to multiply that and it's mind-boggling the amount this guy owes. That, that's like worse than any Along case you've heard of, right? Now, he owed 10,000 talents okay, and he was brought before the king. Verse 25, since he did not have the money to pay it back, but of course, okay, his master demanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Now he is in real trouble. If he wasn't already in trouble, which he was, now the trouble is bearing fruit and it's becoming genuinely troublesome. It's becoming genuinely frightening for him. Let's look at verse 26 onwards. At this, the servant, the one who owed 10,000 talents, fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Can he pay him everything? Honestly, he's just saying, he's just talking out of fear. He's saying that, be patient with me, I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. Now pause here for a minute. This guy has been forgiven. He's been released of his debt. His black hole is unfillable. And he has just been released of this debt. And if you read your Bible straight through, you're going to read from 27 to 28 and you're not going to notice that some problematic thing happens in between verses 27 and 28. Because in verse 27, he has just been forgiven. He has just been released. He has just been set free from the most crippling thing in his life. He has just been set free of slavery for his whole family. In verse 28, that servant went out found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is a much, much, much smaller amount of money. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. Verse 29. At this, his fellow servant fell His fellow servant. So this is, you see a parallel here? At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, using virtually the same words as he used with his master, the king. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. Verse 30, you can almost feel the hardening of this guy's heart, but he wasn't willing. Willing. Instead, he went and threw him into the prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw, and when they see it, they're seeing it with context. They know what happened to him. They know what black hole he, what he has been forgiven of. And they see and they say, this is not right. The collective conscience of his community sees what's happening and they say, this is not right. And they go... They, they, they go do something about it, right? Because when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Verse 32. Then after he had summoned him, the master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed." Which we know cannot possibly be paid, right? So verse 34 is this really haunting verse. It ends on that note. You can only imagine he was tortured forever. Of course, it's a fictitious story, it's a parable, but the, the implication of verse 34, the way it hangs is that, gosh, this torture is not going to let up. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Let's pray, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we just want to submit our own hearts before you, our own relationships before you. We bring before you, Lord God, our own brokenness, our own sin, and the way in which we have we have interfaced with other people sinning against us. And Father, in every respect in which we have unforgiveness, where we harbour uh, uh, bitterness, resentment, anger, uh, um, um, even the ones that we downplay, even the ones that we gaslight to our own selves and to our own conscience, we say, yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. I'll just let it go. Lord, we pray that today you will minister into our hearts with the ministry of the hammer and the scalpel. With the hammer, you'll Crack open the crusty layers of pro- self-protection of our hearts, and you expose before us, Lord God, you, our own beating hearts, wounded, uh, uh, um, uh, sometimes jaded, sometimes bitter, sometimes resentful. And Father, we pray that with your with your own hand, you cut out you cut out the diseased parts of our hearts, so that you can give us, even as even as Ezekiel uh, was it thirty five said, Lord. Give me a heart of flesh. Exchange my heart of stone and give to me a heart of flesh. So Father, we pray today your Holy Spirit will do this work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to show you what I originally wanted, how I originally wanted to preach today's topic. I originally wanted to show you that number one, God is lavish to us in his mercy and in his forgiveness, right? And therefore, we should be lavish with forgiving others as well. Because indeed, you see, God is lavish. The guy says to, the the, the guy says to his master, Give me, be patient with me, I'll pay you back." And, and the, the master, the king, in, a, in essence, God does not say, okay, I'll be patient with you. Which, by the way, would have been par for the course, right? It's like, you offer, I meet you at your offer, law, you offer patience and you'll pay me back. If I am just a normal, nice guy, I will just say, okay, I'll meet you back. Perhaps that is for Peter the equivalent of forgiving someone seven times, right? That is like the 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 standard good. Uh, 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 um, you know, generous, generosity, right? Is, okay, you want me to be patient? I'll be patient with you. But God goes one step. In fact, His one step is like is like multiple times over, 11 times over, right? 70 times 7 right? So, uh, uh, times, right? Which is, no, it's not 11, it's way more, right? And He's lavish. He goes beyond. He doesn't just say, I'll be patient with you. He says, I forgive everything such that He has now a clean slate. And so, we would imagine that God is lavish with us in forgiving us, and therefore, we should be lavish with forgiving others. But some broken thing, some defective thing is happening in between these two things. God is lavish with us. Yes. We should be lavish with forgiving others. Yes, but there is a dissonance between us receiving the forgiveness of God and us struggling to be lavish with forgiving others as well. And that's that defective thing that happens between verses 27 and 28. You would think that the forgiveness that comes from God should transform This guy. You should think that it would change him, profoundly affect him to the point that he would say, that he he would say, I will give this to someone else because I've been a recipient of this forgiveness. But it didn't happen. In the story, it didn't happen. And Jesus tells his story effectively to remind us that day after day after day, it doesn't happen among us as well. So why doesn't it happen? Why doesn't it happen? It doesn't happen because for 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 receiving forgiveness to transform and to uh, to transform into being lavish with forgiving others, it must go through a process inside us. We don't just automatically become forgiving to others after we have received much forgiveness. This is what must take place. It must change us. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see it must transform us and change us and change us in at least these four ways. At least these four ways. That first, it must make us more contrite. Contrite meaning that the receiving of lavish forgiveness must make us more sorry about how deep a debt we had owed. It must make us how, at least more broken and more soft as to the black hole we were staring at, more contrite and then more thankful for the fact that, that that pit of debt has been closed up for us. And of course, more humble and empathetic about other people who have broken and fallen short um, against us, and ultimately to grow and to be transformed, as Romans 12 says, day by day in conformance to Christ-likeness. And so it doesn't happen automatically that when we have received forgiveness from God, that we are immediately very forgiving people. What happens more often is that once we have received forgiveness from God, we go through a journey of being discipled into being contrite and thankful, humble, empathetic, and eventually Christ-like in handling and stewarding that forgiveness. You know you've got to steward the forgiveness you receive. If you don't steward it well, then to you, all it is, is relief relief and that's what it was for this servant in the story he was only relieved because he was staring at slavery not just for himself but for all of his family he was staring at the possibility the like the the sure likelihood that everything he had was going to become enslaved and so the moment he was set free from that all he felt is, Ah, lega. Wah, nasib baik. Wah, lucky didn't. You know, and then that's it. Wow, almost like a huge burden lifted off. Okay, let's go celebrate. Let's happy, you know, because we almost died and we didn't. Wow, let free. You know, nice. And that's all. But my friends, relief does not change us. Relief does not change us. And so, my friends, some of you may be newer Christians and you have more recently encountered the message of the forgiveness of God. Don't stay at relief. For some of us who have been walking with Jesus for years and years now, and maybe you alone will know between you and God how much of, of, of that of that receiving of forgiveness has been translated into a softness of heart and a deep empathy for each other. You and I, only sometimes we will know how much of us have departed from the place of just relief and moved on into Christ-likeness. So I'm going to take us through these four things, being more contrite, being more thankful, being more humble, and being more christ-like because i can tell you church there's no point if i just keep telling you you must forgive more people you must forgive people you must forgive people you you can't it won't just happen because i said it more than once it must go through a process it's like a filtration system that's why i gave you the arrows right it sifts through these things before we end up being more forgiving now let's go to the first one God's lavish forgiveness to us should change us to be more contrite over how gravely we have sinned. Now, I spent a lot of th- time this week, uh, since Tuesday, I've been thinking about this guy in the parable, right? And why isn't he forgiving? Why doesn't he have that, that thing, you know? And I, and I started to think that, okay, he's he's not integrated. So, my first thought is this that this guy is not integrated properly. He is almost like it's almost like a like a like a hard drive that's partitioned. So there's like a there's like a like one partition receives forgiveness. The other partition is untouched by uh, the, the, the 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 side the partition that receives forgiveness. And he's not an integrated soul, and such that there is no he cannot humanize the next person. That's the next thing I thought about. He just can't see the next person as having the same uh, being in the same rotten horror horrendous boat that he was in just a few moments or maybe days prior and so I started thinking like what's happening inside and how do we how do we show lack of sorriness lack of feeling contrite over how grave and how badly we have fallen short and then I realized a few things number one Sometimes for us, we don't feel contrite, we don't feel sorry because we're not even aware that we have sinned. So for some of us, we're we, we just blind spots. It's just absolute blind spots. We don't realise we have sinned. For others, and I would dare say for most of us, it's because we have downplayed our sin. So we have said something to ourselves along the lines of, yeah, it's not so bad lah. You know, it's not so bad. What I did was not so bad. Or maybe we may say that, it's God's problem. Like God is a li- li- little bit too intense. Like, can God lighten up a little bit? Is he overreacting to this? Or maybe we'll say that the punishment that that the Bible tells me for wow, I didn't do so bad, and then he says I'm going to what hell or whatever you want to call it. Like that's a bit of an over uh, overkill, isn't it? Isn't he? Isn't he a little bit you know too quick to you know what? You know what? If we are Christians and we say, how many of you, you believe that you are Christ-centered, right? You are Christ-centered. If you are Christ-centered, how many of you believe that you are Bible-based? Meaning that you order your value system around what the Bible says first. That's your, that's your point of reference. If you are Christ-centered and Bible-based, and sometimes you catch yourself saying that there's no way I only did this much and God is going to, to punish me in that way or the natural consequences of the punishment is that way, then it's overkill. Have you all felt that way before? Because I know I have. I've asked those questions before. And I've also asked the question that shouldn't, if my wrong is only so much, shouldn't the the consequences and the punishment be lowered to match it? And here's the problem. I have put myself in the place of setting the value of how wrong my wrong is. When the reality is, I've said, so I've said for myself, my wrong is only this much, ma, so your punishment is overkill. But the reality is, none of us really know how wrong our wrong is. Because we don't have a point of reference for what is absolutely good and what is absolutely sinful. We don't. We're operating and we're swimming in this grey space where we don't actually know the, the fullness of righteousness and the darkest pit of evil such that we can actually accurately locate ourselves on that spectrum. We can't. The only person who can is God because He knows what perfect righteousness looks like. So in reality, Our role is not to assess how wrong our wrong is and then judge whether God is being fair. The way it should be done is we should look at how God has assigned, uh, if you can call it a punishment, if you can call it a, a, a consequence, God assigned something. And then we say, Oh, that looks really bad. That looks really grave. I suppose that tells me how wrong this wrong is. It works the other way. God assigns the value. We adjust to that value and not the other way around. So my friends, if you ever hear someone say that, how can a good God send uh, 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 just moderately sinful people to hell? It's a bit of an overkill. It's because we are assessing it the wrong way round. A good God sets good consequences, righteous, true and absolutely perfect consequences. And it is our valuation of the sin, which often is way too undervalued. And maybe we you and I need to take this a little bit more seriously. So one of the reasons why we're not contrite is because we think that God is overkilling when He is not. It's just we are under assigning a value. One more reason why we sometimes lack that contriteness is that we, we think maybe we have done enough. And it's not like I actively, you know, have a theology of working for my faith, for, for my salvation, but as Christians, maybe we think that, hey, you know what, I've done. I, I, I go to church, I, ever since that wrongdoing, so I accept there was wrongdoing. But ever since then, I've been not too bad, right? Surely it has to count for something. And because we say that, we don't feel that sense of brokenness. The sense of brokenness that you will see if you go into in, into uh, Psalm 50, 51, for example, and you see how how, how um, David is absolutely shattered, right, in that Psalm. We don't feel that. Because maybe sometimes also we are like still pointing fingers. After 20 years, we're still pointing fingers and saying, it's not my fault, what? I only contributed to a bit, but it's theirs and theirs and theirs as well. And guess what? You're back in the garden where where Adam and Eve were doing exactly that as well. It's a resistance to own the sin and to to allow ourselves to be called out completely. That's why we are not contrite enough, right? And these and maybe more what I'm sharing with you now, it's not an an exhaustive list, you know, um, uh, are some of the reasons why we just won't allow ourselves to be shattered, broken before God. But but I want to show you Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 tells us of the condition of our heart as long as you don't want to own up, as long as there is sin, there is, there is wrongdoing, but you don't want to stand before God and own up to it. This takes place. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. So this guy is all of us before we confess our sins. And there is a sin, there is a wrongdoing, but because for some reason we are not broken enough to confess it, we are just holding on and we're fighting and there's pride and there's ego and there's anger and we're fighting and blaming and all that stuff. All night and all day, God's hand remains heavy. It remains heavy on us because something is just Now, Have you been there? You just know that something is not right and the hand of guilt is heavy upon you. My strength drains away from me like the summer's heat. Verse 5, then, you see the Selah is to pause. And I think it's important that in our lives, we have enough and adequate pause to take hold of what's happening in the heart. And SIBKL at Sungai Buloh this year, I want you to take many moments of pause in your life so that you can allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what is happening inside your heart. Because if you don't pause and you just keep gunning it on, the, on, on your gas pedal, you, you will not, you will not find that moment of clarity of God speaking to you such that you can actually transit from verse 4 to verse 5 but the pause, that rest is necessary, both in song and in real life, for you to come into a full acknowledgement of your sin. Selah, verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And you read the rest of Psalm 32, it's brilliant because this guy, this psalmist this is also a psalm. It's a masculine of David, so it's David saying that. One moment, I, 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 I verbalized it. The moment I said it out loud. It lifted from me because I own up to it. And that's when the heart is shattered, right? A broken and shattered heart, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. That's what's happening in Psalm 32. And that should be what's happening to every single one of us when we stand at the altar and receive the forgiveness, the lavish forgiveness of God. So let's look on, right? First, It has to make us contrite. But secondly, next one, yes, point number two is that the lavish forgiveness of God to us should change us to be more thankful, more thankful for the mercies we receive. And it's hard because sometimes we know that we receive it in a spirit of entitlement. We receive it like well, but of course, he says he's a good God. He's going to forgive me, right? Or maybe you think that I, because it's not so bad, it's not so hard for him to thank me, to, to 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 forgive me. I don't have the sense of gratitude is not there. Can I tell you the sense of gratitude increases the more the ownership of the sin increases, and likewise, the gratitude is greater where your forgiveness of your sins, great sin. And lavish forgiveness results in great and much thankfulness. On one occasion, Jesus was in uh, the home of a guy called Simon, and halfway through dinner, a woman comes in, and she and she kisses the feet of Jesus. She anoints his feet with both perfume and her tears. She wipes the the, the his feet with her hair, and then the the dinner guests are like, dude, super awkward moment. This does not feel appropriate at all. So they're all like, what's going on? Who is she? Why is she like that? This is not right. This is not how people behave. And then Jesus says, Simon, I want to have a word with you. You know, every time Jesus says, I want to have a word with you. Maybe you should be a little bit, a little bit just like, ooh, you know what Simon says? Can, Lord. What do you want to say to me? (laughs) Like, wow, this guy boy, can I see, you know? Um, Simon, I want to have a word with you. And then he says, yes, Lord, what is it? And Jesus says, I came into your house. You didn't greet me. You didn't greet me with a kiss. This woman's been kissing my feet the whole time. I came into your house. You didn't give me oil for my head. She has anointed my feet with perfume and her tears. Of course, she's a sinner, effectively. And you read the rest of the account. Jesus effectively says this, that you, he asked him, two debtors, one owed 500, one owed 50. But the one to whom they owed said, you both cannot pay up, I forgive both your debts. Which one of them loved the master more? And Simon said, the one who owed more? Jesus says, that's right. And she, this woman who came in and, and is a sinner, and you all know she's a sinner. You all don't know your, you yourselves are sinners. You all know only that is a sinner. Well, I'll tell you, she who is a sinner has sinned much, has sinned been forgiven. Let's look at the verse. Let's look at the verse that Jesus says, right? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. In other words, all of you guys, don't acknowledge your sin. You only come and own up to this much of your sin before me. So guess what? You have been forgiven of the little of the sin that you have owned up to yourself. And therefore, you're not actually thankful. At least not much. Why? Because you have only been a recipient of little bit of grace. It's not that these guys are less sinful than she Because because the Bible in the book of Romans says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And and elsewhere it says that our righteousness are but filthy rags. So guess what? Everybody in that room are equally sinful. What Jesus is essentially saying to Simon is this, that you have owned up to so little, therefore you have been absolved of only so little. And that's why you are not thankful. And that's why when you see a display of thankfulness like this, you can't recognize it. You can't recognize it because you don't act like this. You don't love like this. You're not thankful like this. You've never kissed me like this. You've never loved me like this. Why? Because you have never owned up to the amount of sin she has owned up to. Otherhow, You are just as sinful as her. That's the crux. this. So my friends, being contrite leads to being more thankful. The more contrite you are, the more thankful you'll be, the more you own up to how broken and absolutely uh, absolutely, uh, dead in your sins you are, the more God grants you the grace to feel that gratitude for the forgiveness you have received. So let's look. It goes on because, We're going to be contrite so that we can be more thankful. The more thankful you are, the more humble you become as well. And it's not just humility. It's humility and being being empathetic to other people, because the first step is that you're humble about your... You become more self-aware. You become more self-aware about how utterly uh, broken you are, so that in future, for future reference, you know what you are capable of. My friends, I've seen myself at my worst. And though these days I no longer operate close to at my worst, I know what I'm capable of. And I believe for many of you, you have been walking with the Lord. He has granted you the grace to know how heinous you can be, how broken you can be, how conniving you can be, how how sinful, how bitter, how vengeful, you can be how unlike a hyena you can be. Sorry, if you if you all don't know, it's the it's our icebreaker game, right? How how utterly uh, uh, um ugly we are all capable of. That's humility, and then to be empathetic to one another. I want to show you um. Uh, this text um, uh, again. It's from Psalm fifty-one. Sorry, this is from Romans twelve. Sorry. Um, By the grace given to me, we saw this last week when I shared with you about how the kingdom of God uh, um, is is about loving one another, right? And to love one another is to not judge, is to it's to not um, stumble one another. And we looked at Romans twelve, and today we're looking at it in the context of forgiveness. By the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Wow, so sobering. And last week, I shared with you, this is so sobering because Paul is effectively telling us, don't uncut yourself too high. You're not all that. Instead, think sensibly. Just be sober about your how virtuous you are, right? That's, that's what he's saying, right? And so, um, just even this week, I was reading um, uh, I, I try to every day read a short section from one of the ancients. Okay, so I'm I'm currently going through the book, The Imitation of Christ, by Thomas Aquinas. Okay, this is from the 1300s, and and I heard someone say you should read the ancients. Okay, um, because because times change so much. Okay, and today we are dealing with so much things that are uh, uh, expressions of our faith that are that move in and out based on what's trendy and what message is current. And so if you read like the ancients just a little bit, you really get a sense of what has been enduring through church history until now that some of these things have been spoken about by by the fellows in the 1300s. My God, it's like pre-Renaissance era theologians and they are saying the same Things. So I want to read to you a section from this week. I read this and it hit me, right? Uh, so Thomas Aquinas says in the imitation of Christ If you cannot make yourself what you wish to be, how can you bend others to your will? We want them to be perfect, yet we do not correct our own faults. We wish them to be severely corrected, yet we will not correct ourselves. Their great liberty displeases us, yet we would not be denied what we ask. We would have them bound by laws, yet we would allow ourselves to be restrained by nothing. Sounds like us. Sounds very modern, actually. It sounds just like something someone might be be blogging or podcasting today. And this is an eternal truth. We have double standards because we are not humble enough. We have double standards because we think that we are better, we got it right, we are smarter, that we are the barometer. And one of my favorite jokes uh, about, uh, about this is that when you're on the road, anyone driving faster than you is a maniac and anyone driving slower than you is an idiot. You find that to be true, it's absolutely true. Like, uh, you, you know it to be true. Why? Because we've placed ourselves as the barometer for the perfect, necessary, just nice speed on the road. And not just on the road, for everything. Everything we do, well, the, the rate at which you turn out work in your office, you are perfect. Anybody working harder than you is just crazy, right? Anybody working for you, slower than you is lazy, right? We're like that. We're like that. We're not humble. We always think that we got the right temperature and everyone else is either hotter, too hot, or too cold. But God is teaching us humility. Be humble. Don't think too much of the standard that you've set. Someone else has a different standard. Another has yet a different standard. And if you want to explore this a bit more then you can listen to last week's sermon where we looked at all the different people with a kind of like varying uh, a kind of like like standards on questionable and on debatable secondary issues and and often we are dealing with that and that's when pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency comes in. Let's move on. Let's move on. So. God's lavish forgiveness should change us first to be more contrite, then to be more thankful, proceeding from that to be more humble, and finally, it should change us to be more Christ-like in dealing with the sins and shortcomings of others. And, And I don't know how you are when you're angry. I know how I am when I'm angry. First, I bottle it up. I'm a bottler, okay? So I, I'm, not, I'm conflict aversive, I bottle it up first. And then I will try to pretend that everything's okay, but it's already not okay. In fact, it's very quickly, very, very not okay. And But I refuse to let it show. And then I refuse to communicate openly. I refuse to be, be above board and just express what I prefer. And I give in and give in and give in, and I become more and more angry and then I blow, right? Pressure like a tick, 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 <laughs> right? I blow. And when I blow, I become an utter monster, right? I just like, ah, ah, and like for like 20, 30 seconds, I'm just like going bonkers. And then I go off and storm off and skulk around like, like this angry man, right? And the last time this happened for me, And I skulked off into my own private space. And the Lord spoke to me and said, What are you doing? I'm like, I'm angry lah! Of course I'm angry! You know, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I'm like, Run by being a monster before God, which is a good thing. You can be a monster before God, okay? Because the Psalms are full of ordinary people being utter wrecks before God. And He's okay. He's not offended. He, He can tahan, okay? He can tahan. And I think it's important that you can be emotionally transparent before God. It's problematic when you can't be emotionally transparent before God. So that's where I was, but it didn't help that just before that, I was a little bit too emotionally explosive around other people. And so uh, now I was exploding to God. And I was like, yeah, you don't know. And I was going for it. And then He started to remind me and said, Fergus, have I not asked you to reflect me? I do have to answer these kind of questions, right? You don't have to be like Simon and say, yeah, God, what is it you want to say, right? Fergus, have I not asked you to help other people, the people around you, see me when they see you? So, so that if they don't know what a, a friend is like, when they see you, they see what, how Jesus calls you a friend. If they don't know what a father is like, when they see you, they know how God is a loving Father. If they don't know what being a, a, a leader is like, when they see you, they see what God is like as He leads. So what have you just taught the people around you by blowing up? And then he paused. And in that little selah, I had to answer him and say, God, I just showed the people around me that when God is angry, He blows His top. And when God is angry, He loses His temper, He shouts, He bang door, He scouts around like a four-year-old brat. And then he said, Fergus, am I like that? It's like, of course you're not like that. Then why did you show me like that? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to show you like that. I don't mind showing myself like that. But I didn't mean to show you like that. And he says, Fergus, you showed me like that. And until you go back to these people and you tell them, God is not angry the way I was just angry, they are going to walk away with the impression that when God is angry, He's going to blow and then, they are going to ingest the wrong kind of fear of God. It's like, really? I've got to do all that? Like, that's a bit self-aware, right? I say, yeah, you're going to have to do all that. It's like, oh, okay, okay, right? got right? Okay, oh. and so I, I, I And so, I had to do that, right? And this is, this is why, if you look at the next slide, because God says over and over again, through the Bible, but you Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, in faithful love and truth. And so if God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and truth, then surely we should not teach those around us that God is otherwise. And so the journey of receiving forgiveness goes through all of these filters. It goes through all of these transformations inside us. From being able to acknowledge how broken we are, to being thankful, actually, genuinely, deeply, richly thankful that I have been forgiven. And that changes us. It transforms us into humble people. Humble people who will look across the room and say, I know she really hurt me, but guess what? I've hurt some people really bad too. And I know she is really, really nasty, or he is really conniving. But I've been conniving too. I know what I'm capable of. And then to extend each other the grace and mercy that God has first extended to us. And then from there, to show, not through some fakery, not through some manufactured thing, but that as the Lord daily kills us, right? Daily mortification of us, right? He says, pick up your cross every day. And as He daily kills that little part inside of that pride, which He just not too long ago killed inside me when we had that encounter, He says, more and more, you will teach, show the people around you what I am like. And when I'm angry, I'm not the way you are when you're angry. And so, I want you now to ask for forgiveness. And so I had to stand before Him and say, Lord, forgive me forgive me. And because I blew up, because those people around me were doing something that was not very charitable to me as well. And so he's saying that, Fergus, I forgive you. Yes, you blew up. Yes, you showed me and you taught the world around you that I am tempestuous and short, short short-tempered and a bit nutty when I'm angry. And I'm not like that. And I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you for that. But I want you to go back to those people who were uncharitable to you that caused you to blow. And I want you to go back to them and forgive them too. And on that day, I had to go back and I owned up to being whatever I was. And I said, please forgive me. You see, my friends, the entire, one of the most core parts of our Christian faith, one of the most defining things about what makes us Christian is that we consider that, firstly, that we're not all that. We are people who acknowledge that we are capable of most heinous things. We are capable of most, the most wicked crimes. And that the best our own flesh can do to make ourselves look good is still considered filthy rags before the Lord. That's one of the core things about being a Christian. Sometimes it won't work for you to go out there and try to persuade other people that they're horrible so that they can receive Jesus. Maybe sometimes that's not, that's not the, 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 the most gentle and loving entry point. And sometimes we get that wrong. And maybe on another day, we'll talk about it. But for ourselves, we know. On ourselves, we know. And we must know as people who already have come to faith. But if you haven't come to faith, I want to share this with you, not to condemn you but to help you to be able to lift off that burden as you saw in Psalm 32, where as long as I did not own up to it, it weighed heavily on me and and it drained life out of me. If that is you and you've never owned up this before the Lord, you don't even have a lot. maybe you've you've never said yes to Jesus before. And if that is you, I want to give you the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And if today you just want to say, oh, whatever that's happened in my life, I just want to say yes to Jesus. Because the heart of this Christian faith is that you have been forgiven. No matter what you've done, you have been forgiven. And He releases you. Like the debt that the servant owed in the first story, it's been wiped out. And he says, I forgive you. And maybe in your heart, there's another voice that's fighting and saying, but not fair. I should pay up for it. He says, I'm, he, the Lord says that fairness is not what this is about. And when, and when I'm forgiving you, when I'm forgiving you, deserves got nothing to do with it. Sure, you deserve it. You want to pay? You really want to pay? You will never pay it up? Let me release you. And if you had good sense, you would say, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. But the even better sense then is to receive it and give it on to the next person. Every single one of us, eyes turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who did not consider the cross something so terrible, too much for him to take. But He scorned its shame. He went up upon the cross. Behold, the Lamb set to shame on earth. And He went on to the cross to forgive every single one of us, to die in our place, to bear our debts, our black hole. He bore our debt of sin so that today we can owe nothing but the debt to love and forgive one another. Holiness displayed. All my debts are paid. Father, I pray, Father God, for every one of us who are fighting and battling with unforgiveness, in the name of Jesus, I pray, release and setting free of captives. If you have been captive and a prisoner to unforgiveness, and maybe you didn't even remember it before today's sermon, but after today, now you remember it. The Holy Spirit has brought it back to the front of your memory. And you remember it. You know it right now. It's there. It's staring you in the face. And He's saying, Haven't you been drained of life because this has been active, a running process in the background? Hasn't this been sucking your ram, sucking your heart, sucking your life, and just draining you and weighing so heavily on you? Today, I've brought it before you. Quit this broken process release it to god and say lord i f- i ask for your forgiveness repeat after me say lord forgive me forgive me forgive me for this wrong forgive me once and for all and allow the loving the loving grace and mercies of uh, from your throne room from your own hand from the cross to fill my heart and to set me free from this prison of unforgiveness. Change me to be more contrite and sorry. Change me to be more, to be more humble. Change me to be more thankful and change me to be more like you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face to shine upon you so that No longer just you behold the Lamb, but the Lamb beholds you. May the Lord turn His face to behold you and shine upon you. Be gracious to you so that you can be gracious to others. May the Lord show you shalom so that you can bring shalom to others as well. And all of God's people shout aloud. Amen, amen, and let's praise God, let's praise God together.